regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where a long-form in-depth conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Frank Blue, the director of operations at Zilix. With nearly a decade of industry experience in machine learning and hardware engineering. Prior to joining Zilix, Frank co-founded an IoT startup based in Shanghai and worked as a machine learning software engineer at Yahoo in San Francisco. He presents at major industry events such as Open Source Summit and writes the content following publication such as Towers Data Science and DZoned. Frank holds a master and a bachelor degree in electrical engineering from Stanford University. So Frank, it's great my pleasure to have you on the show today. Absolutely, James. Thanks for having me on. Fabulous. So I want to start our conversation with a bit about your personal background. According to my research, you were born in China, but then you moved to the U.S. when you were barely three years old. And then you spent about five years in New Jersey before moving to Corvallis, Oregon as part of the, the child growing up. Could you mind sharing some of these formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. I think from a very young age, being able to see a lot of the hard work and a lot of dedication that my parents put in, in being able to bring us over from what I would consider to be a, I think back then a lot of the economy of China was not that great. Things were really just getting ramped up. And I think a lot of the, I had a very unique experience as a child because we were very much moving from place to place. And I really didn't settle down in a single location that I could call home until probably I was about eight years old. And a lot of that sort of upbringing, when I reflect upon that, it gives me a lot of respect, not just for my parents, but also for my grandparents as well. And I think the support that they gave, both emotionally, psychologically, in supporting that move over to Oregon, Mm -hmm. it was, I can't say that I remember too much from from my early childhood. But for the bits and pieces that I do remember, it definitely gave me a much better, it's absolutely a very formative experience and gave me a much better respect for a lot of the hard work uh, and a lot of dedication my parents put in. Yeah, thanks for sharing a lot about the, the context a little bit. Sure. And I'm curious, do you have any intellectual interests growing up? And in high school, for instance, what were some like your favorite things to study? Because we can talk about that for the rest of the call. Yeah, no, absolutely. I really enjoyed playing chess in middle school. I didn't get as much of an opportunity to do so in high school, but uh, I can't say that I'm particularly good at chess by any means, but uh, that's one of the things I enjoyed doing. I also played quite a bit of tennis as well as table tennis. Those were my two go-to sports when I felt like I wanted a little physical activity in. And in high school, I also took quite a few engineering classes at our local university, so mm-hmm. Oregon State University. 
And that really, I think, formed the basis for a lot of the work that I do today. I think that gave me a really good introduction to the world of engineering. I took a lot of classes, both in electrical engineering as well as in computer science. So all of these put together, I think, really, and, and we were talking earlier about my personal background as well, born in China and then moving over to the U.S. at a very early age. All of these, I think, put together really made me the person that I am today. And uh, I feel pretty good about the future as well. Absolutely. For college, you uh, went to Stanford to study electrical engineering with a minor in computer science. I believe that you get both your bachelor and your master there, right? How would you describe your overall academic experience at Stanford? Yeah, Stanford is an amazing place. And the, f- the four or five years that I spent over there were absolutely some of the most formative years of my life. The different people that I met, uh, the different sort of cultures that I was exposed to, the different classes that I took. But Stanford is very much, I think a lot of folks who have been there and a lot of folks who graduated along around the same time that I did would probably agree that it, it's, it's a bit of a bubble in some way, shape, or form. It's a very unique, it is a very, also, I keep going back to this word, but it is also a very formative experience. During that time, I did get both research as well as industry experience. And I think all of that put together really made it, I think those four to five years were probably some of the, in addition to taking classes about your major, in addition mm-hmm. to learning about what your career would end up being in, I also got the opportunity to meet all these people, different types of people. I also got the opportunity to learn many of these soft skills, be a lot better at, let's say, time management. And there are very, I won't, there, there are so many sort of individual experiences I think that I could dive into and probably talk about an hour for each of them you know, while I was at Stanford. So I won't go too much into it, but yeah. you know, absolutely the combination, being able to meet some people, dive really deep into the coursework. And on top of that, I get the opportunity to do both research as well as get industry experience. I think that really makes it one of the most unique experiences and absolutely some of the most formative years of my life. Absolutely, yeah. Soft skill, academics, and then in, in industry plus research spirit, really. For sure. All of those things. And for sure, yeah. Yeah. Tell me a bit about academics. Do you recall any like favorite classes that you've taken? So there is actually this one particular class called the Entrepreneurial Engineer. Um, I forget what the course number was, but uh, a lot of, and this is one of the unique things about Stanford as well, right, is the connection with entrepreneurship. And I think that class, I think I took that, I want to say that my junior year or pretty, uh, not as a freshman or as a sophomore. And that, I think, really opens your eyes to things beyond just what the stuff that you normally take, right? There was also a year-long, called a single course. It was three courses that you could select, but it was called Introduction to Humanities. I don't think that exists any. I think a different iteration or a different version of it exists now. But that also formed, I think, a great part of my experience there because being an engineering major, it opened me up to very much a different world. And going through those classes, I think, helped me engage with people who are not just engineers, right? People who are not just 
in, let's say, in a tech couple, but also folks who are outside of it as well. Sure. Folks who are probably are, are more in, let's say, the economic side of things, or in political science, or even in some other form of social science. And I think having really very broad, very well-rounded experience, I think definitely helped me on later in life. Absolutely. It sounds like a holistic experience, cut and cut different areas of personal development as well. You mentioned you, you got a chance to gain some research experience and in industry experience. I believe that you did some research in digital design and computer vision, and you also interned at Intel for summer. So can you tell more about that? How did this engagement affect your Stanford experience? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I would say there were two different research experiences that I had while I was at Stanford. The first was in computer vision. This was fairly early on. It was in computer vision. It was more in the ML side of things. And uh, I think the second bit of research experience that I had was actually in digital design. It was in, I was probably a little bit more closer to the major. The industry experience as well was, uh, I was an intern at Intel. And uh, all of this put together, I think it's very interesting to see how these early experiences I'm not going to say decide, but how they influence some of your decisions later in life. I think both of these experiences definitely put me on the path that I am today. As you mentioned earlier, I co-founded an IoT startup in Shanghai that was very much, there was quite a bit of digital design, quite a bit of hmm. uh, more design electrical engineering in that I had to do with my team in that startup. And doing computer vision research early on in my academic experience, I think that really tied directly into a lot of the work that I did at Yahoo, a lot of work right now as well. There's a lot of folks who say that being like a research scientist and being a software engineer, that these are two very different fields or roles. And I would really disagree with that. I think both of these roles, they require you to engineering. In addition to doing research, both of these require you to have a breadth of knowledge about about the topic that you are, let's say, the software that you're building or about the upcoming paper that you're writing. The only difference, I think, is the mode of communication. The way that you, let's say, if I'm building a piece of software, the way that I go talk to the the way that I go talk to the users, talk to customers about it versus in academia, uh, more often that's done through perhaps I'll write a, an eight-page or a 10-page paper about it. But both of these require you to have a very strong depth of understanding in a particular field and a bit of breadth as well to, to be able to, let's say, communicate with other team, other folks on your team. So that's, I think both of these tie in very hand in hand. And I think there's quite a bit that folks who do research can learn from the software engineering side and vice versa as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting the similarities between research and engineering. So you mentioned how that experience working in vision research tie into your, your work at Yahoo. So you graduated from Stanford with a master's degree in 2014 and then you joined Yahoo as a research engineer in the vision and machining group. More specifically, you work on some of the scalable training and deployment of deep learning models for object classification, silency, aesthetic, OCR, and other computer vision application. What were some of your proudest accomplishments at Yahoo? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Right after graduating in 2014, I would say the paper that really kicked off a lot of 
this work, a, a lot of the the awesome stuff that we've seen in the past decade in computer vision, especially as it relates to machine learning and deep neural networks, was Alex Krzyzewski's paper back in 2012 on image net classification. And that back then, even two years later, I think the industry was still figuring out, okay, we've got this awesome tool. We have machine learning. And it's great for both NLP and computer vision and many of these other applications as well. But how do we really use it, right? How do we get it deployed in production? And these are, we, I would say the industry is very much still figuring that out today. But back then, it was very much like the Wild West of ML and of computer vision, I think. And the thing you mentioned, one of the things you asked is, what is the, the accomplishments that I'm most proud of? And I won't really talk about myself as an individual, but I'll talk about us as a team, the computer vision machine learning team. I am absolutely most proud of not any of the individual models, let's say that we created or any of the architectures that we contributed to the broader computer vision or machine learning community, but I'm more proud of the ability for us at a very early stage to put a lot of these models in production. I won't go into too much detail, but in some way, shape, or form, I would say we had something like just under 10 models being used by various teams in Yahoo. I worked very closely with the Flickr team back when Flickr was a part of Yahoo. And getting experience in the entire Yahoo as a company has tons and tons of data, right? And understanding very early on what type of data we should use for these models, how we should use that data, especially as it relates to images and image metadata. Having to figure out all of that as a team, I think that's, I think is our proudest accomplishment there. And we did it, I think, at a time when not many folks in the industry really knew how to. And uh, I think we did it at a time where, I definitely won't say that we did it the most optimal or the prettiest fashion. Uh, I'm not too sure how much engineering detail I can share about this, but absolutely some of the stuff that we've done there. Yeah, I see. You don't have to share too many details. One curious, I suppose most of the tooling for this infrastructure is like in-house, right? Because that role is... Oh yeah, absolutely. And talk about tooling. There, there's so many pieces of infrastructure that we have today that we didn't have back then that if we did have it, I think it would speed up our development by maybe five or even 10x. I know we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but uh, some of the work right now with Liz and with Toki, these two open source projects that, that Zillow's works on, I think a big reason why I decided to join Zillas today is because of that work that I had, because of that work that I did at Yahoo in computer vision, in machine learning, in deep learning in particular. Mm-hmm. Back then, there was a distinct lack of good tools that you could use to put a lot of these solutions and a lot of these systems in production. And having, and I would say even today, we are probably still you know, like a good three to five years away from having these very solid ML ops platforms and having these great ways of putting a lot of these models and a lot of and developing these AI applications. The tooling back then that we had, I, I think in, I don't remember when Docker came out, but 
I think it was in like 2016 or like 2015. A lot of the stuff that we take for granted today was just coming out back then and or was in very early stages back then. And I think going through a lot of that definitely helped me understand some of the problems that the industry faces even today. Absolutely. Thanks for providing that context and sure, yeah. a quick primary for our commission later on. Now, you spent about two years at Yahoo and then I believe in the late fall of 2016, you returned to your electrical engineering roots and you co-founded a company developing indoor localization and navigation solutions called RN Innovations. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Oh, yeah. This ties back in with what I was talking about earlier, where you know, a lot of the experiences that I had at Stanford, not just in vision, not just in research, but also in industry, also in digital design. And I think IoT, even today, is a pretty, in some ways, it's still like a nascent industry. And my co-founder and I, we saw this pretty big gap in IoT, in particular, as it relates to indoor localization. I'll give an example, right? So let's say we're in an office building, a shopping center, or we're in some, or even a warehouse, right? It's oftentimes, it's very, if we're unfamiliar with the area, or perhaps we just entered this building, you can think about it as a person or as an individual, it's very hard for me to know, okay, maybe to get to the floor that I need to go or to get to get to the room that I need to go, right? You can think of this in the context of a lot of other applications as well. So let's say a warehouse application, I'll probably have tens or hundreds of thousands of different items that I need to keep track of, different large boxes that I need to keep track of. These boxes store machinery or perhaps they store other goods. Perhaps they're creative, they consumer electronics. And I want to be able to keep track of all this stuff. There's all this, not only people, but also objects that I want to be able to keep track of in these indoor environments. We spend something like 80 to 90% of our time indoors, right? And seeing this gap, seeing how there was no real good way of doing indoor localization, I think that really prompted us to do this IoT startup that was focused more on indoor location. And being such a new technology and having done digital design and a bit of analog design as well, we chose to focus more on the hardware side of things early on. I think a lot of folks who have done software startups or who mostly do software engineering, I think they take a lot of this hardware development for granted. It is quite difficult. The sort of R&D times can be very long. And in some sense, it requires quite a bit of funding as well definitely saw a lot of opportunities there. But I think beyond early stage, if you look at a lot of the growth investors, we felt like a lot of them were unwilling to invest in hardware for growth. It was a very Silicon Valley, even though, let's say, even though 30, 40 years ago, it was very much a semiconductor, it was very much hardware focused. I think today it's definitely shifted. A lot of the funding has gone into software. So you see a lot of the unicorns today, or even the decacorns, 10 billion plus companies. I would say, if I go on TechCrunch and I, I look at some of these funding announcements, the vast majority of them are in software, tooling, infrastructure. And uh, you know, my co-founder and I, we saw this opportunity here where 
we wanted to do a hardware startup and we wanted to in in IoT specifically as it relates to indoor localization. And there was actually quite a bit of of a push from from China to improve a lot of the IT industry over there. And right. that's when we really were engaged with some China, some investors that were based out of China. And uh, we ended up raising a bit of money from actually both sides of the Pacific. Yeah, that was probably a pretty unique experience in and of itself. But we ended up making our headquarters in Shanghai. And I, this this is getting a bit long-winded, so I apologize for that. But today, I think Orion is in a very healthy place. We wrapped up a Series A in the middle of the pandemic. And the company is self-sustaining. And even though I'm not a part of the day-to-day, I still definitely keep in touch with a lot of the folks over there. And I definitely still consider one of my absolute proudest accomplishments of my career so far. Actually, yeah, thanks for providing all the details. Journey tells me that really hardware is capital intensive. Oh, yeah. No, but yeah. I mean, so it requires certain level of risk tolerance, right? From investors to, to be able to... to yeah, absolutely. Up. Yeah, and there's the risk tolerance, I think, we're talking about risk, right? Um, I think the risk is definitely much higher if you do a hardware startup here in Silicon Valley, or really anywhere in the US, the lead times are much, much longer. Over there, if we had a board design, we probably had gone through like 10 iterations of board designs for our product line. And over there, the turn times in terms of that R&D can be much shorter, sometimes as short as, sometimes less than a week. Whereas if we were to do it here, if we were to do it in, and let's say the Bay Area, or we were to do it over up in Seattle, I think the turnaround times are much longer. I would say probably three weeks. And during that three weeks, during that period of time, between when you submit your PCB for manufacturing, the PCB back, that can be, in some sense, you can be sitting around and twiddling your thumbs and asking yourself, okay, what are some of the problems that I might encounter once I get this board design back? Obviously, we, as an IoT startup, we had a software component as well. Yeah. We had a cloud component as well to our entire stack. But absolutely, the risk is pretty high on both sides of the Pacific. But I would say definitely greater here in the Bay Area or here in the U.S. than it is in China. Yeah. I want to double click on the point about that journey of going back to China. So you mentioned that Aaron received this early stage investment offer from mainland China and decided to go back for that. And you mentioned one of the reasons for that is the Chinese investor were more open to funding hardware startup, as we already talked about. But I believe that there was two other reasons that made you to walk through this decision, which is that the Silicon Valley is get a bit too expensive for you. And also you were born in China. So you want to explore the country, right? From that yeah. country perspective. Can you just Walk through a bit about that decision to actually leave Second Valley for China. Oh yeah, absolutely. The big reason, and this is probably a reason that I haven't gotten a chance to elaborate on in prior podcasts. And I'm really glad that you asked that question, James, which is the fact that I was born there and I also wanted to get a much closer look at the culture. I wanted to understand, having been raised here in the States, 
having gone to middle school, high school, college here in the States, I think it can be, if you don't open your eyes to different worldviews, I can, I think it can definitely be difficult to understand a lot of the perspective from folks, let's say in East Asia or, or Europe or South America. And for me, a big reason, another big reason, like a hidden reason in some way, shape or form, why I felt very comfortable with doing a startup over in Shanghai was the fact that I wanted to get a much, much better understanding of the culture there, much better understanding of people and the way that folks do business over there. And it is absolutely very different from the way that, uh, that things are done here in Silicon Valley. Again, there's probably these individual examples that I could dive deep into and talk for half an hour or an hour about them each. But so much of, I think, here... In Silicon Valley, I think there's, I'm not going to call it like a defined way of doing things. I'm not going to call it that, but there's there's a very different way of, let's say, raising money and doing business and reaching out to customers, reaching out to users than you would find in China. And having gone through these experiences and being able to really understand a lot of the tech world on both sides of the Pacific. A lot of the culture in East Asia, in addition to how things are done here in the U.S., I think this is something I'm really glad to have to have taken away with me. Uh, this is an experience I'm really glad to have had. Yeah, actually, we touched on that part right before my next question, because I think that's something that you plan to share more in your website. Reflecting on that experience of living doing business in China tech industry, you actually been writing this multi-part blog series that has covered. It's the normal life in China as well as the pandemic story in China, I believe. Can you share some of the major takeaways from the series? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great question. And you know, I've been I've been meaning to write like a part three and a part four. We'll wrap up these two parts of this series for quite a while, but unfortunately I haven't gotten, to, gotten the time to. A big reason why I wanted to write these two stories was um, because I feel like there's quite a bit of misunderstanding of both cultures, both from the perspective of folks in the U.S. and from the perspective of folks in China as well. In China, of a lot of the way that things done there revolves around the social contract, where a lot of the folks there will say, "Okay, we'll give up a lot of our individual freedom in exchange for things being taken care of by either." Local governments or provincial governments, or even the central government over there. Whereas you see things here, and especially I see a lot of that in Silicon Valley with the whole entrepreneurial spirit and folks taking different ideas and putting them, turning them into companies, turning them to billion or $10 billion ideas. A lot of that, the culture that you see here has revolved around the idea of freedom of expression and individualism. Right and being able to talk about things freely and openly, yeah. And it's a very—I would say—these are two polar opposites of the, the social contract that you see in China versus a lot of the freedom that you see here in the states. And just—I would say—this is the source of a lot of misunderstanding 
between, let's say, people who grew up in China and people who grew up here in the States. And you mentioned this sort of series and this series of blog posts on it. For the readers out there, this is really, I think, helping folks over here understand that social contract and helping folks over here understand, okay, this is the way that things are done over there and this is why. I think it's the reason why I wanted to write about that. And especially, you see the pandemic response over there has was very swift. And a lot of folks, I think, here based in the States would look at a lot of lockdowns that you see, that you saw, even going, even still going on today, right? You look at Shanghai, you look at some of the provinces in the Northeast, and these are very high impact lockdowns that are happening in China. But I think what I really wanted to do is help folks understand why are some of these lockdowns happening? Why is the pandemic being handled in this particular way, shape, or form, irrespective of whether or not I agree with those lockdowns? And I wouldn't really say that there are, in terms of major takeaways, I wouldn't say that there are multiple takeaways per se, but there's the big one that I wanted to highlight. And again, ties into the idea of having these different social contracts on these two sides of the Pacific. The big one that I want to highlight is that things are done differently because of the culture there. And things are done differently because of a lot of the social and economic differences um, between these two countries. Oh, sure. I want to talk about one interesting point that you mentioned in your blog post on your experience with the pandemic in China. Mm -hmm. Towards the end, you said that Part of the reason that China did this is to prevent the spread of COVID domestically. That is another major region, which is talent retention. Basically, the idea here is like the Chinese government try to incentivize these Chinese professionals who study abroad, let's say in the US, to come back to China to contribute to the economic growth instead of staying there. Can you elaborate more on that point? Yeah, I think when most of the folks on the outside look in at a lot of the lockdowns that you see in China. A lot of folks don't think it's just due to these draconian policies and it's they want to be able to mitigate the spread of COVID at all costs, right? But there are also a lot of other reasons for this as well. And it ties in again to the social contract that I was mentioning earlier, where with these lockdowns, China has actually been able to retain a lot of talent. And again, going back to very early on, you saw a lot of very talented engineers and a lot of very talented researchers, they had actually left China for different, let's say, for either university positions in the Europe and the US, or they had left China for perhaps industry positions in in some Western countries. And from my perspective, another sort of hidden reason for this lockdown was to actually retain a lot of that talent. And if you look at, let's say, ticket prices to fly between, let's say, San Francisco and Shanghai. And I used to be able to get a, like a round trip ticket for $500 or $600. And now one way is probably going to cost me upwards of $5,000 um, due to mm-hmm. a, one of these pandemic lockdowns, right? And that definitely, I think, has the side effect of keeping a lot more of that talent in China with their extended families. I'm not going to, I think, provide any political commentary on this particular aspect. But definitely a lot of the policy that you see in China 
I would say a lot of Western media probably takes it for face value. When the primary reasons for a lot of these policies might actually be some of these secondary reasons. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to say that the pandemic is an example that these lockdowns are our own example of this, but there are plenty of other ones as well, which again, I'm not going to get into too much, but uh, I hope it gets folks thinking about why there are these different policies. And what are some of the hidden reasons behind a lot of the thinking there? Absolutely. And I believe that for the next few articles, you want to cover more of the Chinese tech scene, ranging from the 996 policy to like even the open source community. Can you give some teaser on those ones? <laughs> oh, yeah. I would say like both those articles, I've probably written about half of each of them. And I've, I've been meaning to find the time recently to wrap those articles up. But uh, you see, even you see recently, there's articles where that talks about how TSMC, I think they're building a fab in Arizona and how there's like a clash of culture. And this sort of non six culture, I think, permeates not just through China, but through the rest of East Asia as well, um, through Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, in different forms, right? Perhaps it's not called non six over there, but uh, I would say there's definitely certain forms of, let's say, working a lot. And talking, you know, when it comes to non six or when it comes to the work culture or the work ethic over there, I think this, a lot of this, again, ties back into this idea of the social contract. I, I, during, in these articles, I definitely want to talk about how 996 came to be, Confucianism, how the traditional work ethic from a very young age, how that really created this whole culture of being online at all times or being in the office for 12 hours a day. Uh, how how a lot of that has impacted the tech industry, how a lot of that has impacted millennials and Generation Z as well in China, and how things are changing as well, how things are changing for the better. I think a lot of companies there, they've made a lot of progress in the past two years of getting rid of 996 culture and the culture of just saying, just you're there to write code, you're there to do engineering work, you're not there to ask questions. You're not there to present new ideas. And how a lot of that has changed in a very short period of time. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, to read those blog posts when you release them. And I feel like there's a lot of things that the US can learn from that whole ethic of the Chinese tech scene. Because eventually, I think both sides of the corner, there's a pros and cons of that. But also, Americans work harder than. Productivity output might be better. Yeah, in China, I'm going to speak in very broad terms here. Obviously, it's not true for everybody, but a big problem with a lot of the engineering culture over there, and a big problem why you see why there's not as much innovation in China as you see here in the States or in Silicon Valley, is that a lot of that non access culture and a lot of the underlying key values that stem from that social contract that you see in China, I think, causes a lot of engineers to not question the way that things are done perhaps not question the current architecture. And there's, there's, there's a lot of progress being made on that front as well. What I really love about the States and what I think has really made the U.S. 
so successful in terms of tech is the ability to question everything, the ability to for folks to look at a design or look at the way things are done, look at a particular piece of code and say, or look at not just a particular piece of code or look at something as simple as, let's say, tooling or crypto and ask, can I do that better? How can I improve and simplify that entire process? You know, that's something that is still missing, I think, to a great extent in the Chinese tech scene. There's still a lot of folks who take ideas from the Western world or take these established ideas and try to replicate them in China. And I think right now, today is when we're really starting to see a major shift, starting to see a lot more emphasis on understanding the problem at hand and starting to see a lot more emphasis on thinking critically and figuring out how we can solve a lot of the problems in the industry over there. And I really think it's very much for the better. Absolutely, there's things that we can learn from the Chinese way of doing things over here. I think there's definitely a lot of things that China can learn from the way that engineering is accomplished here in Silicon Valley and here in the States as well. Yeah, I think that series of blog posts that you mentioned, sort of going back to that, I absolutely hope that it helps. And I, I do absolutely plan to do a series actually written in Chinese as well. I can I haven't gotten to it. I haven't had the time recently. But uh, I absolutely do hope that's the takeaway that most of the folks get from that particular series. And James, I'm glad you enjoyed reading that as well. Absolutely. Talking about that learning between Chinese and American technology, it's a good transition into your current journey. So since August of 2021, you have worked at Zilix and you work as a director of operation to manage the global code market and engineering efforts. And I believe that Zilix has the major chunk of engineering team in China. So what about Zilix mission and leadership team that attract you to join the company? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I do want to clarify one point there, which is that Zilix, we are, I think, probably see a lot of early news out of there is absolutely from China. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say we're definitely a global company at this point. Our headquarters are actually in San Francisco right now. And a lot of the work that we do is actually getting this new idea of vector databases. And I know we'll probably talk a bit about that later and get this new idea of vector databases out to users here in the Bay Area, in addition to other locations around the world as well. APAC, EMEA, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And going back to Zillis itself, I think Zillis is in a very unique position today. There's a lot of applications of vector databases and a lot of applications that use AI and ML that really, I think, Zillis was in an awesome position in to take advantage of early on. And expanding on that a little bit more, we definitely made mistakes, I think, when we were at Yahoo in terms of AI, in terms of ML, one that's stuck in my mind for quite a while is that we were working on this auto-tagging solution for photos on Flickr. And I think this auto-tagging solution was based on the deep networks that we had trained internally at Yahoo. And I think one of the stories that ended up coming out about this auto-tagging system was there's a photo of a concentration camp in these barbed wires. And I forget exactly what it was tagged at, but it was definitely tagged inappropriately. So mm-hmm. given an inappropriate tag on Flickr. 
And I think a lot of these missteps early on in AI, in ML, had definitely led a big chunk of the industry to scale back their deployments and to say, look, we should probably figure out how we use machine learning, how we use neural networks, how we use this new technology first, before we, let's say, just go crazy with all these deployments. But in China, I think you see there, there was less of a restriction there. Whereas you see here in the States where a lot of policy came out first, a lot of policy either self-imposed or legal regulation. A lot of this policy was more about let's take the safe route forward in terms of data, in terms of ML, in terms of these systems production. But in China, a lot of these companies had a lot of data and they were very eager to do interesting things with them. They were very eager to do this analysis and to deploy these AI, these ML solutions in production. And Zillow was in a very unique position where even very early on, back in 2017, 2018, there were users who wanted to index, let's say, 50 million vectors or perhaps even hundreds of millions of embeddings, embedding vectors inside Milvus, inside of the vector database that, that was created at Zillis. And this is an opportunity that I think you don't see very much of, or it would be very difficult for any company to see very much of here in Silicon Valley because of the self-imposed policies that I was talking about earlier. Getting the opportunity to work with so much data and getting the opportunity to having that need, I think, really allowed the, the Zillis team, allowed us to scale out the technology and build something that was really production grade, build something, test it in production in a lot of user scenarios very, very early on. And I think you see a lot of that being reflected in maturity of our technology at Zillis today, right? The maturity of our vector database. But going back to the original question, the technology itself and a lot of the work that I had done over at Yahoo on the vision machine learning team, that tied in with what I wanted with Zillis's mission. That really resonated with me. And that's really what attracted me to Zillis. And that's a big reason why I'm here today. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That, that experience working down the pin core, you understand, that kind of solidified your decision to destroy Zillis, right? Now, let's talk more about the technical stuff of the product and the platform and the project. As you already mentioned, Zilix built Mulvis, the world's most advanced vector database to accelerate the development of next generation data fabric. So my question is twofold. First, can you unpack this notion of vector database for the uninitiated? And secondly, what are some of the key performance targets for production-ready vector database? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to give like a brief introduction to what vector databases are. And the idea is that a lot of these modern machine learning models, a lot of these modern AI applications, a lot of modern applications that use or that utilize deep neural networks, there are these embeddings that are taken from these intermediate layers within the model that end up being really strong representations of your input data. To give an example, if I had two images of, let's say, German Shepherds, or I had two images that correspond to Transamerica Pyramid here in San Francisco. Both of these, if you look at their embedding, uh, 
from a properly trained image recognition model, they would actually be very close to each other in terms of either Euclidean distance or in terms of cosine distance. And this really forms the crux of what vector databases are about. These vector databases are really meant to store these high-dimensional tensors or these high-dimensional embeddings that come from these intermediate layers in machine models. And what that allows you to do is to process a lot of unstructured data very well, to process a lot of images, video, audio, text, some more lesser-known forms of unstructured data and graphs, geospatial data, like protein structures. And it allows being able to take all of these different types of unstructured data and embed them into a single space and be able to do nearest neighbor search, to be able to search through contents of images, to be able to search through the content of videos, not by their labels or by their titles, but by the semantics, by what is inside of these pieces of unstructured data themselves. That's really what a vector database is there for. You see a lot of traditional relational databases or NoSQL databases, object databases, wide column stores, so on and so forth. And all of these are really meant to store traditional structured data. When it comes to unstructured data, I think there are definitely fewer ways that this is still a very, like an emerging area. And we're still figuring out how we can process these petabytes of unstructured data that are being generated on a daily basis. A great statistic that I like to use is, I think YouTube gets something like 720,000 hours of video uploaded per day. That's a lot, right? That is a ton of video content. That is a ton of unstructured data. And helping developers, helping organizations, and helping our user base unpack this unstructured data through embeddings is what we really are trying to do with vector databases here. I'm also going to very briefly talk about Milvis. Milvis was actually created within Zillis, created at Zillis. Later on, it joined the LFAI and Data Foundation as a top-level project. And Milvis is the open source vector database that Zillis created and that Zillis remains a major part of even today. And this is a vector database that I have other podcasts, I have other articles on this as well that I'm happy to share with you later. This is really the, the key crux of what Zillis tries to accomplish. And taking this open source vector database and eventually turning that into a managed service, we are currently in early access for this managed service. That's really what Zillis is trying to accomplish both today and long-term as well. Absolutely. And also, Frank wrote the blog post, a gentle reduction to vector database on his website. I'll be sure to include it in the show notes. So listeners who are interested in learning more about some of the details that he just talked about can go and, and take a look and read the articles. I think he also talk about some ideas on how do you select a vendor, vector database, and also like how to put things together and making sure that the solution must be scalable, reliable, and fast, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to talk more about Milvers, as you already mentioned about it. I was taking a look at both Milvers, the, the GitHub repo and the, the documentation. Some of the key features include simplify unstructured data management, high scalability and elasticity, hybrid search, and unified lambda structure, just to name a few. 
Can you provide more about some of the architecture design of Mulevis at a very high level? Yeah, I want to answer this question from the perspective of Mulevis 1 versus Mulevis 2. And Mulevis 1 was very much a vector database that was meant to be single instance, perhaps limited in the amount of resources that you could throw at it. If you wanted to, let's say, index a billion vectors, Mulevis 1, you would actually have to scale out your machine, your individual machine add more RAM, add more CPU, or maybe add more GPU or, or, or some other form of accelerator to be able to improve indexing, to be able to improve query speeds. And Mulevis 2, I think, takes a totally different approach. We architected it from very much from the ground up. There's actually a VLDB paper on it that's going to appear later this year. And Mulevis 2 is very much all about being production ready and being cloud native. I think when you see, when it comes to, I was talking about traditional structured data earlier in a relational database or semi-structured data, and you see these companies like Snowflake or Databricks, I think Snowflake really introduced the whole idea of separating, or I won't say they introduced, but they popularized the idea of separating compute from storage and separating all these different functions and having them be able to scale out independently. And that's really where Milbus 2 is today. So we have a completely separate storage layer from compute layer. Indexing and querying, you can scale out these two clusters independently. So I'll give you an example. If you have an application that requires a lot more querying than perhaps updates, writes, uh, inserts, or deletes, you can scale out your querying nodes respectively, right? You can do that as a part of Milbus 2 will automatically do that for you. If you have an application that does a lot more writes or a lot more inserts than it does querying, you can do the same for your index and data nodes, for your index and data clusters. These are all components of this, and we try to separate them out to make each scalable and to afford users the flexibility of being able to deploy a variety of applications with Mobis 2. And I think it's unfortunate that we don't have a whiteboard right now, but I'm really trying my best to explain how Milvis is architected in a way that allows for production readiness. Yeah. Aside from just that one example, we also have the features that you would want in a modern database as well. Replication, failover, scalability. Milvis to deploy cluster mode or you can deploy in standalone mode. We definitely have great number of users who have deployed Milvis 2 internally in cluster mode. And at Zillis, we have taken that particular architecture, we've taken Milvis, um, and we've built around that. We use that as the core to build this managed cloud platform as well called Zillis Cloud, which I absolutely encourage everybody listening today to check that out. Yeah, for sure. We'll talk about Zillis Cloud later on in our chat a little bit, but since you mentioned a bit about this publication of Mulevis, right? Zillis customer have used a variety of use cases ranging from like recommend system and news acceleration to image search and document search. So can you walk through some examples of these use cases for some of the plans that you have? Sure. That's a great question. I'll go through three of my favorite ones when it comes to Mulevis and when it comes to applications of vector databases. We have use cases in a great number of different applications. 
But I like to really highlight three that I like from just from like the perspective of development and just from the perspective of being very interesting applications. The first is something that we did with a company called uh, Trend Micro. And the idea there was to do antivirus and cybersecurity. They had these APKs and they wanted to be able to do threat detect. You know, they have tons of new APKs coming online every day and they wanted to detect which of these are malware. Understanding if you have, being able to take this APK and generating individual features from it, using those features as an embedding and indexing them in Milvis, that is something that Trend Micro had done and they had put that into production. And it's a very interesting use case because it differs from the traditional use case that you would see for vector databases. It's not reverse image search or it's not video search. It's not semantic textual search. It is very much in a field that I think most people wouldn't really consider, they wouldn't really think about, oh, that's a vector database use case, antivirus and cybersecurity. But we have these companies that had actually used Milvis specifically for this purpose. Another one that I like to highlight is stuff that we did with Cleveland Museum of Art. Was This was a while back. And they had actually launched something called AI Art Lens. This is a much more common use case of vector databases. They were doing something very similar to reverse image search. But why I like to highlight it is because they were, with a very minimal effort, with the Cleveland Museum of Art doesn't have like a 100-person engineering team. Yeah. Or like a thousand person engineering team, they were able to bring this type of system online within a week using as the underlying key piece of infrastructure there. And that I think is a story that absolutely really resonated with me as well. Mm -hmm. The third one that I'll highlight is new drug discovery or using AI to sort of power pharmaceuticals. And again, this is not your traditional (laughs) vector database application. When you think of vector database or when you think of ML, most people think of oh, semantic textual search or they think of understanding image recognition or they think of video deduplication, something along these lines. But drug discovery absolutely is one of the great, we had actually brought on a user or users who are trying to do this. And the idea here is that we want to be able to discover these new and very unique different types of drugs to tackle particular symptoms. I'm not a biology major. I'm not in the biomedical field, so I'm probably not the most qualified to chat about this in detail. But the idea is that we want to be able to do molecular similarity. We want to be able to do 3D molecular search and understand which, let's say, which candidates might be used for these different types of drugs. And again, they had tons and tons of different molecular structures that they turned into embeddings that they then used Movis to index. And they would have a query molecular formula, and then we would give them a candidate list of potential drugs that they could look at to tackle, let's say, some type of disease or a particular symptom. And I think a common behind all three of these applications is that they are very unique or they allowed our users to onboard very quickly. These are three very unique challenges I think that very unique companies faced. There's obviously a lot of other 
what I'm going to call, I, I guess, primary or more, more well-known applications like targeted ads, video analysis, recommendation engines is a huge one. Personalized search, AI chatbot, um, risk control, anti-fraud. There's so many different application scenarios for vector databases, but I wanted to highlight these three because they are so unique or they allowed users to really deploy something very quickly that maybe three to five years ago, it would have taken them three months, uh, now three days. And that, I think, is really highlights the power of Vector Database and, and highlights the power of a lot of this ML infrastructure that we're trying to build. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for providing all the details on this very exciting and more unique use cases of Vector Database. For sure, um, yeah. So moving on from Mirrorless, you are mm-hmm. also the co-creator of Tauhi, which is an open source project that helps software engineers develop and deploy application to utilize embeddings in just a few lines of code. Would you mind walking through some of the major problems that Tauhi solves? Yeah, so great follow-up question this as well. And Tauhi, Tauhi, I think, is meant to be a part of the greater what we call the greater vector database ecosystem. A lot of our users, sure, they have this application-level code where they are able to generate their own embeddings. They're able to take their unstructured data, push those through these machine learning models or push them through these embedding generation algorithms. And then with those embeddings, use them as to do future queries. But we also had quite a few users who maybe going back to the AI art lens example would claim the Museum of Art. Perhaps their engineering team is fairly small or they are not as well versed with embeddings or machine learning or with AI. And I think Tohi really aims to solve this gap, right? Tohi really aims to be the upstream um, data pipeline or embedding data to vector platform that leads into Milvis. And I like to consider Tohi to be like a new ETL platform for unstructured data. Mm -hmm. I think you see a lot of traditional ETL has always been about getting trained data for your machine learning models. I did a lot of that over at Yahoo. I did a lot of data mining there in terms of images. But today with these more powerful machine learning models, with machine learning models that more and more companies are willing to put into production, uh, these models are actually becoming a part of the ETL process itself. And being able to turn unstructured data into embeddings or being able to generate tags from, let's say, videos or images or being able to do this video deduplication through embeddings, that is what Tohi aims to accomplish, right? So Tohi and Milvis... Even though these are two independent projects, we're really trying to aim for a one plus one, Tohi plus Mobis, uh, Mobis plus Tohi uh, is greater than the sum of its parts type of effect there. Absolutely. On, Fulham, on that point, so I was reading to the docs of Tohi a little bit. It, it is very well written and there's also a session on design philosophy of the project convenience, extensible, and application-oriented. So I think that's the guiding principles that formulate the architecture project wrap. More specifically, the authority is composed of four main building blocks, operators, pipelines, data collection API, and the engine. Can you unpack the high-level design of Tohi for that initiative? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I'll go over this pretty quickly because I don't want to die too deep into this because we, I would say the Tohi architecture is absolutely still in a very fluid state today. We're still making tons of improvements and changes to the overall architecture. But uh, Tohi, 
the architecture is definitely not as complicated as Milvis's architecture. But the idea behind Toki is that we want to be able to do this new ETL for unstructured data. So each individual step of that ETL pipeline would be what we call an operator. And an operator can be composed of, we provide hundreds of different operators prepackaged on our Tohi hub. And an operator can be something as simple as an image transformation to a full-fledged network, to a full-fledged machine learning model, right? And these individual operators chained together help form a pipeline. Data collection sits one layer above a pipeline where it provides this very Pythonic API, kind of like a Spark-like API, which will allow users to create um, their ETL pipeline from operators or from our pre-built pipelines as well. The data collection API, I think, is the most user-facing thing for users of Tohi, and it's what allows for rapid iteration and rapid development of applications that utilize embeddings. And you were talking about the engine as well. I think the engine is the component that's most in flux today. Given a data collection or given a pipeline, the engine is responsible for doing the automatic optimization of that data collection and running that in a production or in a scalable environment. So that's a quick introduction to the main building blocks of Tohi. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is a much simpler architecture than Milvis. Milvis is composed of many more pieces, and there's a great deal of engineer work that has been put into it and will and is still being put in today to optimize that architecture as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to see more development, more release about Milvis and Tohi in upcoming quarters or so. Stepping back into the specific tooling of these two projects, generally speaking, like you have written a lot about neural network embeddings and how these embeddings can help machine learning more accessible for application developers. How do you anticipate the evolution of the embedding tooling landscape to support the increasing adoption of unstructured data? I like to use this phrase, which I didn't coin, by the way, I, I believe it might have been coined by Yan Kuhn, where the industry, I think, is moving in a direction where we're going to be able to embed a variety of different types of unstructured data. We already can today, but what will be unique, I think, about the future is that we can embed more and more unstructured data into the same embedding space. For the folks who are familiar with models such as CLIP, or for the folks who are familiar with, with multimodal learning, I think one day we're going to reach a point where we can embed tons and tons of different unstructured data into the same space. It's foreseeable that we could embed video, images, and text in all into the same space one day. We could probably even embed, let's say, text and protein structures into the same space. We could, with that type of embedding, could probably search for, probably do AI drug discovery, simply by typing out the type of symptom or the type of biological process that I'm trying to look for. And I think this is the direction with a lot of machine learning work that you see today. I think this is the direction that things are in. We're going from a single type of multiple different types of data being able to be embedded into the same space. And with this will come more and more exciting applications and especially when it comes to Milvis, being able to index a variety of different types of unstructured data and being able to search through all of those different types of unstructured data with different forms of queries. I could query across using 
image, but I could also query across my vector database using embeddings from the image or embeddings from text. I think that's really exciting, and I think that's the evolution of where we're going today. Fabulous. Yeah, thanks for painting that optimistic future, but the embedding space. So finally, Zilix will release a managed version of Mupus later this year. As you already alluded a little bit earlier, Zilix Cloud, and it will be applicable to different scenarios compatible with mainstream AI frameworks and leverage modern cloud infrastructure. But yeah, can you just keep a primer on what you expect with this enterprise database solution? Yeah, absolutely. Zilix Cloud is very much going to be a managed version of Milvus, and we want to make it as easy as possible for users to get a vector database up and running. And what we're really providing here is a way for users to access a vector database via either an API or via a user interface. Uh, that's really what Zillow's Cloud there is about. Of course, for the users who want to deploy, let's say, on-prem, this will always be open source and we absolutely welcome these users to, to take Milvis and, and deploy it um, on their own cluster in an on-prem solution. But we, what we're trying to do with Zillow's Cloud is leverage all of this public cloud infrastructure, leverage AWS, leverage the different components, different tools that they provide, leverage Azure, GCP, and be able to create a version of Milvis that runs on the public cloud very, very easily accessible to a variety of different users and a variety of different organizations. That's really, I think, the ultimate goal of Zillow's Cloud at a high level. Later on, our hope is to be able to onboard other open source projects as well that we develop here. Um, obviously, at Tohi, our hope is to, at some point, be able to have that on Zillow's Cloud as well, an embedding generation framework that Zillow's Cloud will take care of all the backend, will take care of all the compute. And I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like in the future, but you'll be able to get embeddings that you can use then in this very quickly. And we'll probably at some point have some joint solutions there as well. Milvis plus Tohi running in a single framework. Fabulous. Yeah. Thanks for discussing some of the interesting initiatives in our roadmap. Frank, at this point of conversation, we want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. Then you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Sure. Number one, name three people in the broader AI and ML community whose work you admire. Yeah, I would say Jan LeCun, who very famous professor in AI ML. Yang Qingjia at the Creative Cafe and Sumit Chintala, who I think I, I definitely recommend all the folks to go look at some of his early interviews, creator of PyTorch there. Number two, name one book that you recommend for people to cultivate a better engineering master? <laughs> I would recommend A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. It is a pretty old book, but uh, I think it's not directly about engineering, but for, for engineers, I'd say go take a read. And I think you'll, at the very end, you'll see what... And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage ML engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would just say keep up the awesome work that you're doing. ML AI is a very deep field and it definitely requires quite a bit of knowledge to keep up on a yearly or even a monthly basis. Fabulous. So Frank, I think it's a great way to end our conversation. Really enjoyed talking with you today, learning about your personal background, moving to the US from China, your college experience at Stanford, your time working in computer vision engineering at Yahoo, 
uh, joint journey with Orient Technologies. Very interesting discussion on China, culture, technology, your current journey as an additive operations. Zelix discussing you know, vector database open source project, interesting application, as well as the evolution of embedding application to support the increasing adoption of unstructured data in the future. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today into the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to take a look, follow up, and learn more about some of the interesting work both at ZLX as well as some of your personal blog on things that you could pay attention to. So yeah, I have a great time today and hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, James. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.